I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm joined now in studio by Neil Premkumar, the founder and CEO of Dialab Brands, one of the fastest growing beverage companies in the U.S. with two brands sold in 22,000 retail stores nationwide. Neil, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for for driving over. You're based in New York. Yes. Yeah, but it's not too. We're we're we can we're considered the the sixth borough, so it's yes. nice for you to make the trip uh, to Philly. Um, let me first start by w- uh, pointing our listeners to your website. Where's the best place for them for them to go? So we have two websites. Okay. One, one, our coffee brand. We have the number one U.S. coffee shot is Forto Coffee. F O R T O coffee.com mm-hmm. and then the second brand we have is called stir uh, and it's the number one all-natural organic drink mix like a kool-aid crystal light drink mix that's stir drinks s-t-u-r drinks with an s.com okay all right so i like to start off by having you give the elevator pitch but now i'm a little conflicted because we've got two products and a parent brand why don't you, why don't we start with the with the vision for the company for the overall vision, and give me the, the 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 vision and the elevator pitch for the company. So you know, it, to your point, it, it's a little disjointed, and I think a traditional venture capitalist would probably be like, "Well, let's focus on something like this." Our our vision is really simple. We wanted to develop products that delight people, mm-hmm. and so uh, when I started the business, it really was just the, our drink mix brand. My wife was pregnant with our twin girls. We've got almost five year old girls. And she used to get really dehydrated, wasn't drinking enough water. And so we used to go to the doctor, and um, the doctor would, would say, listen, she's got to have eight or ten glasses of water a day. So how, how are you going to get something in there? She, at the time, and still now, wouldn't have anything that wasn't natural organic. Yeah. And so it, it changed the moment she got pregnant. And I think that's part of a, a widespread shift in in the millennial generation, or even, you know, I was probably on the elder side of that. And so... Um, I couldn't find anything in the shelf that was that was that was truly natural organic. Mm-hmm. So let me get this straight: she would have, prior to her pregnancy, she would have been happy with Diet Coke. Oh but yeah, that, but we that, ate complete crap for yeah, many yeah, years. Yeah. And then she said not to disparage the Coke Coal Company in any way. But uh, then then to and then she said, "Wow, you know, I'm actually concerned about what I put in my body." Yeah, and I think you know it, it's funny that we researched this because we have a product that a lot of young families consume and a lot of. Folks who are managing diabetes or blood sugar levels or um, or weight management programs, the inflection point tends to be around the time when when adults start thinking of themselves as a family, as having a family, either having kids of their own or kind of being away from their their folks. Mm-hmm. And then the consumption of things like drink mixes and other products um, come into the forefront. And so, and now with this generation, I think there's a lot more uh, emphasis put on what exactly is it. I'll give an example. For the first time in history, the average American turns the label around to look at the ingredient statement more than they do to the front, which is actually a fascinating change that's happened for packaged goods in the last. In all packaged goods? In all packaged goods. All, all All food and beverage. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So let's dig in. I, I think maybe we got to take it in turn. So let's start with STIR because that was the first product. And again, the spelling is S-T-U-R. So STIR. Uh, 
I can't remember. Did you bring any with you? I didn't. No. Oh, okay. Sorry. So we're gonna we're gonna we'll have to. So I want you to describe for me what stir is about. Yeah. So stir is a liquid concentrate. Okay. Uh, we use real fruit extracts, mm-hmm. and we add a little bit of stevia leaf extract, mm-hmm. which is a uh, plant that's been used for centuries in Paraguay and Brazil. It's got natural sweetness, so yeah. um, locals used to actually kind of squeeze the plant and and derive sweetness from it. Yeah. And chew it. And so we've we work with an extract of that, but that's also what's in Truvia. Or it is, yeah. Okay. It's yeah. it's fairly yeah. common. In fact, yeah. it's it's uh, it was approved in the U.S. about ten years ago, yeah. but in Japan it's been used since the '70s. Yeah, um, and it's 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 gaining more and more popularity. We use the combination of this. We we do something kind of unique with our stevia. We steep it in warm water. Mm-hmm. So most stevia you find in the market tends to be cut with, um, it's processed with alcohol, so mm-hmm. it has a bitterness or stringency. Mm-hmm. And our stuff, we figured out if we steep it like tea leaves, hmm. we could get natural sweetness out of it without having the aftertaste. Hmm. So that's what we ended up doing. And um, it took 130, 40 tries in the beginning to get it yeah. tasting great. Um, and we kind of evolved with it. So we constantly tweaked the flavor and the taste and whether it was too sweet or too tart. And and quite honestly, it's funny, uh, our model for how I built the business was more like a software company, mm-hmm. less than a packaged goods company. When I worked at Nestle, we would spend about a year and a half to two years to perfect something, something we thought was perfect, and we would put it in the market. And you might be very right or very wrong. And mm-hmm. half the time you, you did very well, and the other half time was a total failure and you moved on. What we figured out was now with online sales, you can put products up on Amazon and other online platforms, your own site, and get rapid feedback and just change the product. So our drink mixes have changed probably 20 times in the last wow. five years. Now, all under the same brand. You didn't announce some big new model. You just yeah. incrementally tweaked no, it. In fact, yeah. all in the same flavor. So it would have been yeah. a fruit punch, you know, liquid concentrate you yeah. squeeze in water, and it, it's changed at least 20 times. Yeah. What, what has been the biggest change? I mean, what, is it just you're you're changing obviously in response to something in so response, consumer feedback yeah so it's a little too sweet a little too, not sweet enough that sort of thing exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Um, okay so uh, again walk us through the user experience so this is a liquid concentrate does it come in a single serve or multiple it's a multi-serve yeah. uh, bottle it's about mm-hmm. a two ounce bottle uh, it fits in your palm or, or pocket or purse okay uh, each bottle's got 20 servings. Mm-hmm. Um, there's zero sugar, zero calories, and about 100% vitamin C in each serving. Mm-hmm. You literally flip open the cap, point down, and squeeze. Mm-hmm. One second, one squeeze is an 8-ounce glass of mm-hmm. water. And it's got 28-ounce glasses uh, worth in the bottle. And the primary benefit proposition, I know there's some some vitamins in there, but the primary benefit benefit proposition is it tastes better. Yes. Right? It's okay. a, it's a, yeah. It helps people drink more water yeah. naturally. Yeah. All right. So that was your initial product and uh let me ask just to catch up on a couple product details what what do i pay for it 3.99 okay typically um we're in about 80% of the grocery stores and it ranges for from about 3.49 to um 4.49 but typically 3.99 and where do i find it in the store it's immediately adjacent to the drink mix the powder drink mix set so, so crystal light that exactly. sort of stuff yeah it's right there yeah okay got it all right and so let's talk about the uh the second product so along the way, we invested in a production facility, and um, we had capacity. And we were always looking at um, it's kind of from two sides: from the personal, uh, you know, problem need opportunity, and then also the business side. From the personal side, our kids were growing up, and mm-hmm. we were running after them. And I was drinking a lot of energy drinks and shots, and and similarly to the drink mixes side, wondered why we 
you know, couldn't just make a coffee mm-hmm. that had as much energy as something like a five hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and I figured out pretty quickly, as soon as you brew coffee and leave it out within six hours, it turns bad. It's actually uh, very fickle. Yeah. So it took us a couple of years to develop a coffee that tasted the same the day you brewed it as it did 18 months later. Mm-hmm. And so that was a process. And, and uh, we now produce at the same facility in the Midwest uh, where we produce all of our drink mixes. So it's, it's, um, been a synergy there. So give us the pitch for the second product. So was- Forto uh, is our coffee shot is the actually the only, you know, two ounce coffee shot in the country. We figured out a way to make it. Um, it's a premium coffee, organic, fair trade uh, and cold brewed for 20 hours. Mm. It's basically like drinking two cups of coffee at once, like two cups of premium coffee fast. All right. So I'm uh, you did bring one of those. So I'm looking at it now. I'm a little scared because this is two <laughs> cups of coffee. Okay. Well, All right. Maybe I'll drink half. That might be a good idea. <laughs> okay. Because it's it's uh, it's evening in Philly. So it's a package, pretty interesting package. So it looks like a like a a venti uh, Starbucks cup, yeah. right? It's a tall it's a tall cup, uh, but but sh- but put in the sh- in the miniaturizing machine. Yeah. So it's about uh, three inches, seventy five millimeters tall. And maybe an inch and a half, uh, 40 millimeters diameter. Looks like a little coffee cup with a brown lid. Pretty good looking, pretty good looking package. Okay, so I just, I where do I get this in the store? So that's typically the front end next to shots. Okay, so that's being sure shot uh, the, sold with the, is it five hour or four hour? Five hour. Five hour is the big one. Yeah, that's sold sold at the at the checkout. And what do I pay? Two ninety nine. Two ninety nine. Okay, so less than that venti at the, uh, or it, pretty close to that venti. At it's the, close, but it's yeah. it's two cups worth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that venti is actually about three cups worth. Yes, right? yeah. <laughs> That's why it's called a venti. Okay, all right. Here we go. So I'm going to pop it open, and and then there's a foil pack, a foil seal. It yep. looks like. So I'm going to peel off the vacuum seal, foil vacuum seal. All right, here and we go. The ones that I brought you today, I, I picked up on Rite Aid on the way over. We're in all the Rite oh, Aid Oh, no stores. way. So this is right on. Yeah, I just of, literally bought it. I'm yeah. just coming in for another meeting. All right. And um, we just launched a new version of this with milk. So yeah. this is the version with straight black coffee. It's strong. All right, so I'm looking down at what looks like a really strong espresso. It is. It's all a right. strong espresso. All right, I'm not. don't tell me what I'm going to experience. Okay. <laughs> here we go. Ready? Okay, here we go. Ah, it's it's good. It's got a it's so it's got a little sweetener. Does it, it also did. have stevia? No, we added sugar. Sugar. Yep. Okay, so it's got a little sugar. Definitely a strong, definitely very coffee taste. It has almost a a fruit note in there that I'm detecting. What it, it's really just coffee and sugar? Yeah, right? it is. Um, wow, it's uh, the added caffeine. Yeah. So we actually, and when we cold brew it, we actually extract uh, caffeine from the entire coffee fruits. There's mm. extra caffeine, it's about mm. 200 milligrams. Mm. That added to the note of the organic bean kind of adds a, a slightly fruity note. Yeah. You know, I've never, I've never tried the five hour, but, but tell me a little bit oh, about it's gross. that. <laughs> Is it? Well, that was my question because I look at that and I think. Why don't I just take a two mil, 200 milligram t- caffeine tablet? Right. right? Well, that's yeah. possible. I yeah. think there's a lot of people who have um, who feel like a pure caffeine tablet's a drug. 
whereas a liquid drink is a more acceptable, less scary alternative. Uh, we're back to the clueless consumer theory, oh, I, I guess. I mean, it, it's it, I, I don't dispute it actually, yeah. but but really, is is there? It's 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 just a molecule being added, right? It is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. their stuff is a very, and the price point is, you know, they're selling it also at three dollars for basically synthetic caffeine, right? As opposed to a tab which is probably 10 cents right 20 cents yeah so that's why i never got yeah but it was an incredible phenomenon it still is right it is it's yeah. got a billion dollar brand that's just to me mind-blowing yeah it's a billion dollar brand, and and it doesn't it, well i haven't tried it you say it isn't it, it tastes terrible now i realize you're conflicted but still <laughs> totally unbiased yeah <laughs> uh was that the so you described the origin story as you needed more caffeine to keep up with your kids, um, but it, was that was it also informed by watching this category really explode? Hundred percent. Yeah. The, the other thing on the business side, we you know with our liquid concentrates have a two ounce bottle, so it's about mm. the same height. Yeah, I see. And so we had a production line that we were yeah. making this for, and and if you look at the pure numbers of consumption. With our multi-serve concentrates, you know, it has 20 servings. So even our heavy, loyal consumers, uh, we're only going through one a week. Yeah. Right? So 50 a year and averaging, say, $4 retail, that's $200 a year total. Yeah. A consumable product that's an immediately consumable product, like five-hour, mm. their heavies are going through one or two a day. So yeah. say 10 a week or 500 a year. At $3, that's $1,500. Wow. So we were looking at a comparable market that was nine times bigger. Um and for the same back-end infrastructure mm. and everything that we do. So we're, it was an easy thing to start to investigate. Now, it ended up taking way longer than I thought it would. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a good two-year process. And even now, the version that we just launched uh, nationwide now tastes like a Frappuccino. We, I think the addition of milk made a big difference. And so that's that's our sales univelocity has doubled since in the last two months since we started launching that. Yeah. You know, so... I Geez, I got a lot of questions. Um, I guess the first one is, how analytical were you about this next opportunity? You had one thing going. You had some traction. You're doing pretty well with it. You probably always had aspirations to do more than that one thing. But but how many opportunities did you look at before you settled on Forto? That's a great question. Um, surprisingly few opportunities. Mm -hmm. I, I, it wasn't like I was looking for something else. Yeah. Um, and in fact, many times over the process, I thought, God, this is crazy. I'm, I've already got something that's working and yeah. it's growing. Why am I wasting my time? But I just the concept of doing this and doing it correctly was really compelling to me. Mm -hmm. And I thought if, if someone could do it, it, it was mind boggling that a synthetic caffeine shot was doing a billion dollars. Right. And still is to me. Still so, is. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at the household penetration of, of energy drinks and shots, it's only 7%. Yeah. of U.S. households. You look at the household penetration of, of coffee, it's 80%. Right. And so the, the concept of a double shot of coffee, you could just drink and mm -hmm. go, and it's not a, you know, not everybody wants to enjoy every occasion for coffee. Right. There's certainly a process and a ritual in the mornings, but our research had uh, found that there was a, a pure efficacy, I want to get a right. caffeine boost in the afternoon. Right. So when people make, use the phrase, I need a strong cup of coffee, they're not mm -hmm. talking about the robust beans or the flavor. Right. They're talking about the energy. Right. And so we thought there was an opportunity for an afternoon shot to go. Yeah. And when I dug into it deeper, um, you know, here's an example. We And this is part of the pitch we have to retailers. We're in about 15,000 stores with that product. If, um, if you look at total retail coffee sales, mm -hmm. 
uh, 90% like to go like grab and go coffee, brewed coffee, 90% of their sales are in the morning. Only hmm. 10% is in the afternoon. Yeah. But if you look at Starbucks Cafe's coffee sales, 50% is in the afternoon. Interesting. So a lot of the volume that exists, half of the volume that exists for Starbucks Cafe's is coming past, you know, 11, hmm. 12 o'clock. The retailers, you know, packaged goods retailers aren't really taking advantage of that. Yeah. And so our product allows people to have a grab-and-go coffee shot yeah. and helps them capture the incremental volume. Neil, do you remember, uh, I'm, I'm still curious about the, the product, and... I, I don't know if you remember uh, one of Coca-Cola's biggest snafus, which was black. Mm-hmm. They had a product called BLAK. Yes. It it was foul-tasting coffee in a bottle, basically, yeah. uh, is the way I remember it. It lasted, it seemed like it lasted about a week in the market. Where? Why did that fail, do you think? Was it a timing question? That was probably 10, 15 years ago. It um, was, yeah. yeah. It might have been longer. It might have been 20 years ago. Wow. Okay, um, yeah. I don't, you know, uh, uh, conjecture because right. I, I, I don't know for certain. My theory, honestly, is that there, a lot of these things are s- super tight as to what the pure utility or mm. function of the product is. Coca Cola is a refreshment product, yeah. right? Whereas coffee, besides the morning ritual, it tends mm. to be a utility product. Mm. It, there's a there's a boost you're getting to it. Which is why five hour and even and four till our coffee shot is a utility focused product. It's yeah. got to be able to taste good enough for you to knock it back mm-hmm. quick. Mm-hmm. I think Black attempted to straddle the lines yeah. of like pure refreshment versus utility, and nobody really knew who it was for. Yeah, I think that killed it. Yeah, but it it raises. So let me let's circle back and see if we can we can derive some principles here. Black, I would characterize by it. it you know, it could have been a hundreds of millions of dollars investment probably was probably for, was. for coke for national and launch. and they did a national launch i'm sure they did some test marketing but basically they took a huge swing at this thing and it just flamed out you of course didn't have that luxury but how did you go about validating this opportunity before well tell me just you had an idea yep you you didn't take a hundred million dollar swing at it so how did how did, yeah so how did you val and well but 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 had you done that it might not have worked, right? I mean, that's what I'm trying to get at. What is the right strategy for testing a concept like that? And how'd you do it? Well, see, I think that's why the, uh, there's where entrepreneurs have a huge advantage. Yeah. Because you don't have to commit that much money. And our ability and our and our hit success requirement is way lower. And yeah. if I didn't invest $100 million and it happened to do $2 million in year one, that's a that's a great success right. if I invested nothing. Right. Whereas for them, doing $2 million and fleshing out the concept would be a total failure. Somebody gets fired. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Many people probably. Yeah. You know, for us, and, and package goods in general, right? I, I think the same philosophy always since apply. Go for a, get a minimum viable product that you think is is good enough that people will love, some mm-hmm. portion of the population. Go into a very specific market, depending on the product, right? Mm-hmm. So a product like ours, it's sold really in two different places. Convenience is probably half the, mm-hmm. the business. And then um, kind of food, drug, mass, grocery, type business, um, which is the other half. And those tend to be multi-packs and larger format. Do you have a multi-pack? We do. We have yeah. two packs and uh, we're, we're, we have six packs. Okay. Um, we started testing in convenience initially. In fact, we launched this with the U.S. military, which is unusual because the military and the commissaries, they rarely they rarely take initiative on new products. They mm. tend to just wait till something is established in the market um, and, and buy it. But... Uh, the U.S. military partnered with us, and they were our first customer for the product, is they were looking at alternative ways for energy because you know the troops and their families are, are huge consumers of energy, drinks right. and shots, and they're looking at non you know artificial mm-hmm. options. And mm-hmm. so when we 
came to them with a the concept. They were like, we love it. Let's try it. So that test allowed us to kind of see what the, the base sales rate was versus the, versus five hour mm-hmm. and where we stood. And, and as it stands, we're like right in the middle of their unit velocity. So we figured out early on that this concept was incremental to the category. We had some data from a few accounts. And mm-hmm. then from there, it just started snowballing. Okay. So let us let me back out a couple of those terms. So the way in packaged goods, how, how do you think about success for a product? What are the key metrics you look at? Unit. Units per store per week per SKU. Mm-hmm. That is the most important criteria. Now, there's a lot of things you've got to get right before you right. get to that point. For example, the margin of your product has to be high enough. Right. And But that's there's sort of some established norms there. Yes. And and give us a sense of what they need to be. It doesn't, you don't have to tell us about your product, but basic, from for, let's say from retail price in the store to cost of goods, what is that ratio typically? So, it, and it's very category dependent. Yeah. And it also depends on the velocity of categories. For example, a full 10, 12, you know, 20 ounce beverage mm-hmm. would have a lower margin, but a much faster unit velocity. Mm-hmm. And so the, the total penny profit would be roughly equivalent to if you were making, you know, um, uh, cereal or soup and you might have higher unit, you know, volume or lower unit volume, but higher, higher margin. margins. Yeah. Generally speaking, right. 40% is a good target. For cost of goods? For cost of goods. So let's say you have an item for that uh, you're selling $0.60 cents as a, a wholesale price. Mm-hmm. The retailer adds 40%, mm-hmm. and they're retailing it for a dollar, mm-hmm. hypothetically. And you are making it for $0.40. Cents, and what... you've got to make it for... No, you... Yeah, at least... Oh, you're saying the retailer's gross margin is 40%. That, and also your gross margin should roughly be 40%. 40%. So, so actually... If your gross margin is 40, I'm just quickly doing the math, you need to make it for about 36 cents. Yes. Okay. So so just I just want to give a rule of thumb to our listeners. You got an idea for a food product. Imagine it on the shelf. Imagine what its price has to be to be comfortable there on the shelf. Take, let's say, 30, 35% of that. That's sort of what the number you got to hit. Roughly a third yeah. of whatever a the third. retail yeah. price is. Now, it varies quite significantly. Energy shots in convenience stores, the retailer wants to make at least 50 points. Ah. To and put I'll, it next to that in that precious real estate, exactly they want fifty. They want fifty percent. Yeah. Now they also, in many cases, require there's a distributor requirement. So in right. some cases, you can't ship direct. Right. Most of the convenience is through a third party distributor. Ah. The distributors will take, depending on their negotiated deal with the retailer, anywhere mm. between ten and twenty five percent. So you're you've really got to back into all of this. Right. Ch- every channel is very different. Uh, but rule of thumb for the first out of the gate. Roughly a third of the retail price. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say a quarter to a third because I people tend to their costs creep up. Yeah, and so I want to just uh, uh, qual, uh, calibrate people. You know, I want to circle back on. There's many things to circle back here on, but the 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 first is you talked about formulation and a two year process, and you used we. So tell me a little bit about the team and about literally how you formulate. Are you in your kitchen? doing this in the uh, beginning i was yeah uh, when i say we i just i typically mean myself but all right, I, all right. The, the royal, the royal we. We, right, yeah. okay all right uh <laughs> in the beginning it was my wife kind of telling me things were really disgusting tasting yeah. and i needed to try harder yeah. um and it was mostly in the kitchen myself i hadn't had friends from um nestle who were food scientists who would come over and help me out and yeah. help me formulate certain things and then you know what's what i realized and what's happened in the industry in in beverages which is really fantastic trend is that maybe 30 40 years ago Food scientists who used to work for places like Coke and Pepsi left to start their own independent flavor yeah. houses and provide, you know, organic and natural flavor extracts. And so you can they'll actually help you do development with them if you can convince them, which is a tall task because some of them were like, you know, 
you're a small company, I, I wouldn't and talk to you. They get paid a few hundred bucks an hour to yeah, be, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. But we were, I was able to convince a couple of them to, to try our early stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I was able to source my own extracts, fruit extracts from third-party suppliers mm -hmm. who I could trace the supply chain from. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was just a lot of legwork. Mm -hmm. And then once I found the fruit extracts and was able to work with the suppliers, I would literally camp out at their office, you know, once a week and taste things and go back and forth and give my opinion and mm -hmm. keep tweaking it and changing it. Once I found for a given flavor, let's say a strawberry watermelon, that it was acceptable enough, we put it up on Amazon. And Amazon played a huge role in our company's growth. It's, um, you know, it's we'll do a few million dollars just on Amazon this year. Wow. And it, we've got six, 7,000 five-star reviews. We get a lot of feedback from consumers. Yeah. And we mine the feedback. So we know exactly what people think about each flavor and what they're doing and why they're using it. Um, that has made a big difference. I think that's a big equalizer today that mm -hmm. didn't exist 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. But for aspiring food and beverage entrepreneurs, what does it actually take to get something, to get a SKU that, that you can sell on Amazon? So you've got a, basically a recipe in your kitchen. Right. And then what do you have to do? You have to line up packaging. Okay. Right. So identify something that, uh, in my opinion, I think packaging has to be really thought through and invested in. Yeah. Because there's very few things, you really can't compete against the big guys in mm -hmm. terms of scale, distribution, mm -hmm. or, or money. But you can compete with your package, right? You're probably, for the first five years, never going to have any other form of advertising. So investing upfront in the, the packaging is significant. In the beginning, I, I put money in the company from a previous venture, and mm -hmm. I... Um, Put it less than hundred thousand dollars into the package, mm -hmm. and that that was a differentiator for me. Yeah, that that I would consider a lot of money. That is a lot. Yeah, of money, yeah. yeah. So I mean, that's that's what a big company might spend on on a package. Uh, Maybe. Yeah. Well, or but 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 it's interesting. So you said that is super important, and I got to put my money there, and that's great advice. I want to make sure people get that. And what does that actually mean? You mean with a packaging designer or with the factory that is going to produce? Both. Okay. So I hired an industrial designer. Mm -hmm. We went through multiple different versions. Using 3D printers now, you can actually yeah. do it way cheaper than when I started. Mm -hmm. um, and then once we had a plastic mold in the model, I went through a, a proper manufacturing facility yeah. and looked at different forms of how to do it and then I had to in the beginning um, with stir with with our, our liquid concentrate right. it was even more complicated because you have to actually have a um, a silicon uh, like ring at the top of the the product to, to control seal. the flow. Oh, to control the flow. Okay. And so that it's calibrated to be able to squeeze based on, you know, per pound of pressure. Mm -hmm. That was a very complicated process mm -hmm. and it actually leaks for about a year and a half. It was a pain in the butt. Mm -hmm. But eventually, you know, honestly the the biggest difference I find with entrepreneurs in this space that have succeeded versus ones that failed is their willingness to take punishment yeah and to continue <laughs> to come back and um, and grind it yeah because it's it's tough yeah so just to just to underscore this packaging point so what that basically means in the context of stir is you you did a custom bottle basically yes, I did okay and so that a hundred thousand included the tooling cost it did. to get ready to produce and then and then talk a little bit about the 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 supplier of the stuff itself and how that works with the pa with the packaging. In terms, the supplier of the I was thinking of the goo of oh, the liquid. Yeah, of the liquid concentrate. Yeah, so so you got a package. Yeah, but that that it that that supplier isn't formulating your no your yeah no. So then you know based on whatever product you're, you're formulating, so whatever formula you have, mm -hmm. it, there's usually a handful of different suppliers for each of the ingredients. Right. So the folks you know we work with on the stevia supply side, the the farm cooperatives. 
totally different than the folks we bought, you know, the fruit extracts from, right. different from the citric acid supplier, right. different from the vitamin C, ascorbic acid supplier. So pulling them all together and then formulating them at the lab, we'd have to coordinate ample, you know, supply quantities in, in the beginning, go small. Right. Because you really have no idea how much you're going to sell. Did you literally do it in a, in a batch in a, in a test kitchen? Yes. Or, yeah. Okay. And so you're filling bottles manually, basically. Personally, yes. Yeah. In fact, I used to bring it home yeah. and have my wife help me. Yeah. 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 And, and something that's surprising to a lot of listeners probably is in the U.S., you self-certify all this stuff. So pretty much anybody in their kitchen can be filling stuff and selling it. Yeah, it's, yeah. Quite, it's quite amazing, yeah. actually, it's, yeah. and kind of scary. And very scary. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of random stories. I, like, right. uh, I just read the biography of the Honest Tea brand, and mm-hmm. the, one of their you know, in their small like test kitchen, a glass broke, and they had to stop production and like find the glass that right. was in pieces of their product. It, it's surprising how low a barrier it is right. to try. Right. And, and how many units roughly... Did you do? You, would you say you would make on that first batch, or would you advise to make for that test on Amazon? Ten thousand at the max. Low, Ten thousand is a lot of units. It is. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I'm forgetting how little I made at the time. It might have been a thousand. in your kitchen. I was going to say ten thousand yeah. in your kitchen. I think you might have been get, the first per- commercial version was ten thousand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then the leap to the commercial version. What do you do? So we had to finalize a, a co-packer. Right. Okay. In our industry, we, we you have two choices. It depends on the, the product you're making. Mm-hmm. Right. Some of the more complicated products require your own production line, which is yeah. way more expensive right. and, and a real investment. But very rarely. I mean, almost anything can be made by a co-packer these days, right? A third almost party. anything, yeah. yeah. But there are some, you know, certain probiotic products. I've mm. seen people like, for you know, kombucha, they've invested in their own yeah. facility. I, I highly recommend in the beginning going with a co-packer. Yeah. You may end up, you know, investing in it yourself, which right. is what we ended up doing. So oh, now you we, did. we okay. now control the production. But in the beginning, at least, it's just a, a worry that is off your plate. And with the FDA requirements on food safety, mm-hmm. so it's actually getting a lot more difficult to do commercial kitchen type mm-hmm. stuff. You have to sell less than $50,000 a year. I see. To be able to just make something in your kitchen and slap a label on it and put it on a shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, you ha- Now the FDA's cracked down. In fact, as for this August, there's a, a variety of additional requirements that the FDA has put in place for, for co-packing facilities. Mm-hmm. But they're still... Uh, I see. So, you, but the co-packer is is responsible to comply with those. Correct. So they they figure that out. They know what they're doing. Correct. Uh, and then you just contract with with them. Correct. How how big do you have to be before you can go to a co-packer? So that's another great question. Yeah. I've, there's a huge gamut of co-packers, mm-hmm. right? So the ones that uh, the the ones you really want to work with that really do the bigger brands, the minimum runs. That, it's all the way on up. So yeah. with Forto now, you know we're at a million units a run mm-hmm. per production run. Wow. We couldn't even get to that guy. The the next tier below was like two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, per run. The tier below that, you know, there's usually two to three tiers. Mm-hmm. The tier below that might be like twenty five thousand. Yeah, if I say twenty five thousand is probably the lowest. Yeah. So that and and just doing the math and rough numbers, that means you're basically you got to be prepared to write a check for twenty five to fifty thousand dollars yeah. for that order for yeah. that to get started. Yeah. Now. Yeah. If you can convince a co-packer, just like if you can convince a flavor house to be able to work with you and take a flyer on you, mm-hmm. that'll help. Yeah. Right? So I think in our first run, I think we convinced a co-packer to, to try 10,000 units in the first commercial run. Right. Um, all right. So I want you to I, – I wonder if you can talk about your experience – tell about a little bit about your own background in consumer packaged goods and, and I guess the – well, first, just tell me a little bit about your background. Yeah, so yeah. I I spent my entire last seventeen years or so in packaged goods. Yeah, 
I started um, in what is now Pfizer, but on the consumer division side in sales and business development. I was a brand manager for the Advil business mm-hmm. 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then I come back here to Wharton and get my MBA. And when I was here, I started a marketing agency. Mm-hmm. And we used to work with big packaged goods, uh, food and beverage companies like Unilever and um, General Mills. Mm-hmm. And um, after uh, that venture, I, I moved on to Nestle and I worked in their nutrition group and internal entrepreneurship there. And then um, managing marketing for the Power Bar brand. Yeah. So I've been in packaged goods and food and beverage specifically for my entire career. Yeah. And so it's, I mean, it's the same business in many, in many ways. So, but it's the same business in an extremely different context, which is now it's your money yeah. and your business. That's totally different. So I want to, I want you to tell me how it's different. So, uh, no. so, so, so you're at Nestle selling yeah. Power Bars uh, how is it different from your dialogue? You know, your is your oh, own totally. money. Yeah, 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 no, it is completely different. Yeah. I think you know the fundamental economics of the business are the same. Right. The the act of of doing things, you'd be amazed at how many established companies they're so siloed because they have a, a long-standing relationship with every retailer in the in the industry. Mm-hmm. So developing that relationship is is not really what they're doing. They're just kind of kind of handholding an existing product and right. and sharing it with the account. That was the first difference that I noticed. Like we, you know, you're is the entrepreneur. You're doing everything. You've got to source the materials. You've got to finalize the formula. You've got to actually give packaging input back and forth and finalize the design of the package, the instructional design and then the label design. Mm-hmm. You've literally got to make sure the pricing works. You've got to line up the the financing. You've got to do it all yourself. And at a big company, you, you rarely ever do that. Yeah. Well, give me a sense. I, I'm just curious about how much more efficient it is. I mean, I suppose on the one hand, you you have to do some things on the cheap that you'd have real pros doing mm-hmm. at, at the, you know, food scientists and so forth, packaging experts. But I wonder if you can calibrate us a little bit on the order of magnitude. So let's say you were doing Stir at Nestle. Yeah. What what kind of budget would there be to develop and, and launch that product? There, there'd be a multi-million dollar budget yeah. to launch a product. But the problem, so there... On the on the pro side to a big company, yeah. there's a much bigger budget, a lot more pros doing specific things. I mm-hmm. mean, the first couple of versions of the product, the regulatory, we didn't really have a regulatory affairs person, so you know, using the FDA guidelines, I kind of figured it out myself. Right. We would have a proper legal team, an FDA team, you know, yeah. in the very beginning. And there's more money, and there's immediate distribution, so you can shove things out to a number of stores very quickly. On the flip side, the time it takes is way longer. And Nestle was an 18 to 24 month process yeah. to launch a product like yeah. Stir. Today, if we conceive of a new flavor or a version of the product, it's three months before mm-hmm. the idea is in my head to it is in the store. Mm-hmm. And now with enough scale, I mean, with 20,000 plus stores, I can get into several thousand very quickly. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. In March of 2016, um, we expanded the Stir drink mix line into powders. Mm-hmm. Powders is actually 80% of the drink mix market. Mm-hmm. Liquid's a very small percentage. Um, within the, the powder segment, there was no organic product. So we launched the first USDA-certified organic powder in the U.S. And um, when we conceived of it in March, we shared early design prototypes with a couple of our bigger customers, Target, um, Kroger, and a handful of others. They from March to on the store shelves in June, end of June, July was three and a half months. Wow, it would have literally taken Nestle a year and a half, two years to that. Mm-hmm. And so it's now in six thousand stores, and it'll probably double this year. Yeah, so that's super interesting, and it is in fact one of the reasons. I mean, I've had people, I've done some work in in food and beverage for big companies, and and they basically say. 
yeah, we're really bad at that kind of early figure it out product market fit. But once it's figured out, we, we can we, shove we, it everywhere. Yeah, millions of yeah. cases a week, no problem. Yeah. In, in fact, that tees up, I suppose, an obvious question, which is uh, put on your Nestle hat again, look at your company. Um, are you thinking about, geez, you know, that's a great idea, that Forto Coffee. Why don't we have one with Nescafe? Sure. Um, and, uh, and, and then you have a build or buy question, which is, should we just try to crush them or should we acquire them? Yeah. Tell, tell me, uh, you know, let's talk through that issue. I suppose the general issue is competition. And the more specific question, as you think about as an entrepreneur, how do you think about these people as rivals or potential acquirers? Yeah, you know? we're going through that right now. We've yeah. been contacted by four different strategic companies in the last five months. Yeah. Um, it is from the Nessie side or the big company side, right. always a build or buy yeah. question. Right. And I can't tell you the number of meetings that we had with entrepreneurs on the other side where we just said, hey, tell us how you did this, what you're doing, and we'll take a look at it. The f- you mean when you were at Nestle? Yeah. Yeah. The funny thing, though, is yeah. that what I found is the bigger companies, it's really difficult to start a brand mm. from nothing. And even mm. if you see something in the market and you're like, that's a cool idea – to be able to lead it into an organization almost never happens. Yeah. Most of the time, they're, they'll see something that's a cool idea, and they'll say, well, I'm going to keep tabs on that idea. Mm-hmm. But the market moves way faster than their ability to, to catch up to mm-hmm. it. So i give an example. When 5-Hour Energy launched, their first year they did $3 million in sales, then 14 then 70 then $180 million. When I was at Nestle in 2008, we looked at – or 2009, yeah. we looked at 5-Hour. Yeah. And they were, at the time, doing $180 million. Yeah. I mean, by the time we had a chance to talk to them, they'd already surpassed and, and the And then plan. you'd have to spend a billion dollars. And then and you then, spend too much. Th- then it's a big, then it's, yeah, interesting. So yeah. the big company, I, I, I feel their pain because yeah. a lot of them have thought through, well, let's do early stage venture capital. Yeah. So a lot of them have internal VC arms and they think through it differently. But it, it's a very difficult proposition for a big company. Mm-hmm. I actually think the best place to be now is a small company. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard in the very beginning. You're, you're struggling. There's a lot of stress. And I don't wish it on most folks. But when you get to a certain size, meet small, medium size, like like we are today, yeah. it's the best time. Yeah, it is. But but there is that bridge you've got to cross. I mean, I'm, I'm an investor and a, a former student as a, a small uh, food brand. And, you know, we do a couple million in revenue a year and it's it's just too small to be of, of much interest so where's the sweet spot how big do i have to be before a nestle says you know I, we want to talk so yeah. we're at 20 million this year and that's okay. right around where we're starting All right. to get so 20 million is kind, of, kind of the magic number yeah. but you know, what i'm what i'm finding is it's very different for different companies mm-hmm. nestle's a good example nestle's is a 90 billion dollar company right so for them 20 million is even too small right I mean, that really doesn't move the needle. Right. You need to be at seventy-five to hundred million dollars for mm-hmm. them to really care. Mm-hmm. Other small, mid-tier companies, you know, like a Campbell's Soup, might mm-hmm. be more intrigued by that. Mm-hmm. Or other other companies that have earlier stage investments. You know, realistically, around ten million is what I found that a lot of venture capital firms you're on their radar, so yeah. they're somewhat familiar with the category and the market, and they're willing to provide growth capital. And then around 20, 30 million is probably around the sweet spot of people trying to discuss. Yeah. If you look at just pure investment banking mm-hmm. in this sector, the average acquisition is about 50 to 60 million yeah. in revenue. Yeah. The thing is, when you know, when you're if you're doing 20 million in revenue, you let's hope you have positive cash flow. And 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 that's a very different situation to be in because you can pay yourself, you're you're in stable, you know, you can grow. So that's the yeah. situation yeah. we're yeah. in right now. Yeah. Which we don't have to raise money. Right. You know, we're not planning to and we haven't in a year and a half or so. 
So it's a nice position to, to finally be in, but it, it you know, took five years. Yeah, talk, let's let's go back to the financing a little bit. You said that you had made some money on a previous venture. You put it back into, mm-hmm. or you, you put it into the, this company. Um, I, I looked up on Crunchbase. You're not on the radar on Crunchbase. Does that mean you have not taken institutional uh, funds? We haven't today? really taken institutional. Okay. So um, talk a little bit about the financing, how you thought about your personal risk profile and what you want to put on the line for for this kind of thing. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm fairly risk averse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have money and investment and retirement accounts, and I you know I incorporated the company like a couple of months like a month before the kids were born. And I named the company Dyla, which is a combination of my two daughters' names, Dia Aww. and Nyla. Yeah. But I did it for not just because I love them, but also um, I figured, you know what, if I'm going to name a company, my company, after my kids, this damn thing better not fail. <laughs> and so that was my thought of I'm going to jump off a cliff to do it. Yeah. We put a good amount of savings into the company. And um, in the beginning, I was able to convince my former boss, who's the CEO of my division at Nestle, to put money in. He's invested in every round, and mm-hmm. he's, he's on our board. And then over the last few years, just folks who added a lot of strategic value, the former CEO of Kraft Foods, um, mm-hmm. you know, beverage division, ran all the drink mixes, all the coffee, uh, is one of our lead investors. Um, India's largest health food and beverage company invested in the business a uh, year and a half ago. Um, so that's a strategic, and the others I would characterize as angels. Yes, yeah. although the they operate kind of more angelic, and they're not really a professional strategic. It's more of a Oh, the the Indian company. The Indian company, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, really, all all angels. It really saying. is mostly, yeah. It's almost yeah. all angels. I've, I, you know, despite the fact we call them angels, I've rarely heard them described as angelic. Yeah. So that's <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I guess if things are going well, it's nice. Yeah. So, but but at this point, you need, I presume, you need working capital because mm-hmm. if you're moving twenty million, your receivables are. 60 days, your payables are 30. I mean, you so need to. So we now have a line of credit at the bank. Okay. So that's how you've done that. Yep. Line of credit with the bank. Yeah. Just in this last year, we yeah. started that. And let me ask you, uh, um, it, well, I'll just ask you, um, do you, is that like you're lending the money yourself? Like, are you. Did are I you, guarantee it? Yeah. No. But did you have to sign for it? No. Okay. So that's I, that was a criteria for me. Yeah. That at this point, I felt like, you know, we're already cash flow positive. Yeah. I didn't want to have to guarantee a loan. Mm-hmm. And was that just a conventional old bank, or was there is a special? There, yeah. it, it's a bank, but it's yeah. it's a smaller mid tier bank. Yeah, you know, big banks won't talk to you right. until you're fifty million. Right. So, about how big do you think you have to be before you can get a money money without a signature? Um, we're probably the, on the smaller end. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Most. I mean, I probably talked to five or six banks. Yeah. And only two of them willing to do it. Yeah. So in my experience, I I've been in this spot myself, and until you're in the tens of millions, it's pretty hard to get a bank loan without a personal signature. Yep. And then you're sort of like, what's the point? I'm not really. I'm. Yeah. I get the money, but I'm taking. I'm taking the risk. Right. Yeah. Um. All right. I want to turn to. I know a question that that our listeners have. I certainly have is about uh, uh, channel and really selling into the channel. So uh, you mentioned a couple things. One is the military bases and the other was Target. Mm-hmm. But tell me how you got into these channels because that strikes me as some of the hardest, one of the hardest things. For, it is one of the hardest yeah. things in the space. It's honestly, it's cold calling, cold yeah. emailing and cold calling. It, I, it, There's nothing sexy about it. I, our, our, our number one uh, retail customer today is Kroger. Mm. We've got um, 10 or 12 items in 2,000 plus stores. And I developed a relationship four years ago when I cold called the buyer 
every day for, I don't know, maybe a month. So it's not like you knew these people from Nestle no, or anything like that? No. Okay. You were on the same starting line as everybody else? Completely. Okay. Yeah. I didn't yeah. have any benefit there. Yeah. And um, I cold called him. Eventually, randomly, one day he picked up first thing in the morning. I tend to find that cold calling buyers yeah, yeah. works better before the workday starts. Yeah. So eight and nine is the witching hour. Yeah. Uh, A.M. And, and what's the pitch to a buyer? Uh, you know, I mean, that's all he does is avoid guys like yeah, you, right? Yeah, no, no, they really don't want to talk to you. You're right. Um, I usually, you know, I think you got to present the first com- the first thing out of your mouth has to be something of interest. Yeah. So, for example, I will always reference something in the market. So I'll say like, "Hey, you know, this is Neil. I've, I've got this brand. Uh, you know, we're the number one or something," and give a little moniker to I it. I see. Give you did some you, credibility. Did you yeah. see us our article that was featured in Forbes and the New York mm. Times last week? So I, in the beginning, we had a New York Times article that featured us. I would throw that out every chance I got. Yeah. Because that establishes some credibility that he should at least listen right. to for the next 30 seconds. Right. Otherwise, he'll, they'll try to shut you down. Yeah. Does sampling work at all? Like buyers? Yeah. Send, you, know, you, send, you send a little care package and then yeah. you call. Yeah. yeah. In fact, what we do now is you know, typically it's a cold email to a new buyer, a, a a call and then we send samples to the office. Mm-hmm. Is it still primarily you doing that or who's no. doing So how tell me how you've because that's also a critical transition for an entrepreneur. Often the founder entrepreneur has pretty good sales efficacy because they're so passionate and you they have know to. the product. Right. But then you've got to make this transition to a sales force yep. essentially. Talk a little bit about how you made that transition. So uh, the first person I ended up hiring actually was in was in sales. Um, he'd somebody I had worked with at Nestle mm-hmm. and uh, knew well and, and I knew he had a terrific background and was very, much more entrepreneurial than I think the environment that he was in and, and the role he had. Yeah. So I thought there was a big opportunity there. Brought him in. He, he and I worked out of my, you know, he calls it my attic, but it was my top floor of my townhome. Yeah. And um, we worked for about a year just staring at each other basically mm-hmm. every day. And my my logic was, you know, even if he didn't prove out to be a wonderful business development person, if I still did most of the business development and then he managed the accounts. Because once mm-hmm. you get a retail account, there's a lot of work that goes into it. Besides the paperwork of setting it up, ensuring the product arrives to their distribution centers on time, that their deductions are not you know, too high or inappropriate, which they are for half the time. Yeah. And uh, executing the promotions or the, the, the deals throughout the year, the, evaluating the data that comes through the account. There's a lot of work ongoing. Mm-hmm. And so I figured at least I'll have him and then I can, you know, focus more on business development and he can manage the existing account. So that was my first hire. The second hire, um, w- really around the same time, although it was part-time to start, was um, a friend of mine also at Nestle who mm-hmm. – Ran all of supply chain for Gerber, so it's like a one point oh, wow. eight billion dollar supply yeah. chain, and he had you know, thirty employees. But young guy, but a brilliant guy. Yeah, and I can, tried to work on him to join us full time for about a year and a half, and he was like, "No way! <laughs> what are you talking about?" Yeah. But I'm happy to help you part time, and I paid him part time. Yeah, and then as we kept scaling, he was like, "Oh, maybe this thing actually does." It. So eventually, after about a year and a half, two years, he joined. Very nice. Yeah. All right, we just have a. About a minute left, but I wonder if you could give us a little bit about the vision. So you've got you've got Dyla Brands, and then we've got and we've sorted it out eventually. But we've got Stir, that's S T U S T U R, and we've got Forto Coffee. Mm-hmm. What does the portfolio look like a few years from now? So I think you know each each brand is it speaks to a specific consumer. So Stir, mm-hmm. it's about uh, consumers who have a dietary need to drink more water, mm-hmm. right? They may be facing um, you know health issues or they're, they're trying to drink more water because they've been on a weight loss program or a blood sugar level. So for those folks, it's how can we help them drink more water naturally? Mm-hmm. Drink mixes are one, but we're actually this year going to look into ready-to-drink products. Mm-hmm. So actual cans and, and uh, both sparkling and still 
drinks. With Forto, we really want to own strong coffee. Mm. The, the concept is like this is the strongest coffee on earth. So for folks who are either drinking energy drinks or shots or having afternoon coffee for energy, that's our market. Mm-hmm. And so we're expanding into different formats for that. All right. And you're having fun. Yeah. Okay. That's good to hear. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM, Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.